Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. God has not changed his address. God was not part of the urban flight or the rural revitalization program. God still lives where God has always lived in your heart. God is still doing what God has always done, loving you. God is still who God has always been, the source and supply of all that you need and desire. God is still doing things in the only way that God has ever done anything, in the only way God can do anything, eternally. Now, some of us don't think God is still around because we haven't visited God in such a long time. With all the changes and the challenges, the ups and downs, additions and subtractions in our lives, our faith in God may have faded. Some of us may even have concluded that God has gone away and that there is absolutely no way to find God in the midst of all the pain, confusion, discontent, disharmony, and discord in our own lives. Nothing could be further from the truth. God is still in the same place in the midst of your need. Being the same way, merciful and forgiving. For the same reason, love. Under the same circumstances, waiting for you to acknowledge and accept how much you depend on God. In the Archbishop's Corner is where Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair reminds us that God is still here and we still depend on God for all of life. It's a good reminder, one that we all need from time to time. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner, where your input will provide us with important keys to creating a more productive and positive relationship with God and God's people. How are you today? Fine, thank you. Well, let's begin with a personal question, if I may. Do you know any grouches? I mean, you know you know the type of people, someone who is always habitually irritable or complaining. Well, I try to look on the bright side of things, but I'm sure that I must have encountered some people like that over time. As today is National Do a Grouch a Favor Day. I suppose I, once I see that, I kind of avoid them if I can. But uh, I, I think we all do. But I'm, I'm trying to think. Now, you're supposed to do a grouch a favor today, and I suppose that means to help a grouch be not so grouchy today. Oh, that's a big challenge. I know. I, I don't know what one could possibly do, except maybe point it out. You know, Joe, every time we meet, I get the impression that you've got something to complain about. You're always grumpy. You're always grouchy about something. Did you ever know that you come across that way? I would think that that would be doing a grouch a favor by pointing it out. What do you think? Well, I do think that fraternal correction is uh, you know, considered a yeah. Christian virtue and even a duty. Of course, you have to find the right time and place and have the right rapport with the person to be able to say it. But yes, I think that when we do say that to one another, that's uh, that's very important. Um, that's that is a, that's an act of charity, really. True. In any case, tomorrow, February seventeenth, is President's Day, a day that is celebrated on the third Monday of February every year. And originally, it was established to celebrate the birthday of George Washington, but the holiday has become all about all presidents, especially George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, since their birthdays are both in mid-February. Well, as a history buff, Archbishop, what most impresses you about these two presidents, Washington and Lincoln? Well, I've had occasion in the last several years to read uh, biographies of George Washington uh, and about the history of those times. And I must say that he really 
uh, was a providential leader in the Americas at that time, mm. and I think a very honorable man. Now, we understand that we look back at history and are very harsh in our criticisms of people and their views in the past, and we forget that a future generation is also going to be harsh and critical about people today because it is a sinful and fallen world. But I must say that uh, I think notwithstanding the great moral scourge of slavery that was accepted back in those times, for example, I think that, and, and as uh, bad as that is, I do think that in the context of those times, and that's how we have to evaluate situations and people, I do think Washington was an honorable man, and he certainly was a courageous one, a great leader, and he was very instrumental in solidifying this country at its beginnings and a great leader. And Lincoln, similarly, uh, you know, in his lifetime, was uh, very courageous under horrific pressure. I mean, the Civil War casualties and what was happening were horrific. And the whole question of the regard to the abolition of slavery, um, I just think both of them merit our admiration and commemoration. I don't want to just gloss over something important that you said, but but pointed out. You made mention of the fact that we can't judge the people of the past with what we know of today. In other words, times have changed. We need to look back at the times in which they lived and the situation, personal situations, the particular situations they were experiencing at the times. We can't judge them with what we know today. Well, yes and no. I mean, for example, when we look at something like a person like Adolf Hitler, we certainly can't make any excuse for the times in which he lived or the kinds of prejudices that were about. But the destruction but we, of human beings is, has always, including today, been catastrophic. Yes, and there's no justification for that. When we look at slavery, for example, which is such a hot issue uh, today, Obviously, we, you know, slavery is not something that's morally acceptable. But the, as a matter of fact, in history, and not just against black people, but in general, uh, his, uh, slavery was a part and parcel of society in the ancient world and uh, in much of the world. And I dare say it still is today. It's repugnant. Yeah. It's, but it was part of the social order so that, you know, even in the New Testament, so, uh, po uh, Paul could say, uh, you know, slaves be subject to your masters because there's a higher uh, dignity that both slave and master have. So do we say, well, Paul it kind of accepted the social order of his time, even though Christianity made it clear that this is not acceptable and eventually it was abolished. So those are kind of gray areas, you know, where we have to, you always have to judge people uh, personally in the times in which they live, even if the great moral issues uh, do admit of recognizing uh, evil as evil and and institutions that are that are not acceptable as being not acceptable. You know, it's even getting more serious today in other areas, quite apart from that. But uh, you know, I was reading uh, re recently that Yale University has dropped a course, if I understood correctly, on Western art, European art, because now they're saying, well, basically. That's a form of domination, you know, that we have to look at everybody's art. Now, there's some truth to that, obviously, but are we going to repudiate everything about our past uh, because, and our culture, our civilization, because we say that, uh, you know, it was oppressive or what? I mean, you get the, the, the yeah. life is more complicated. The, the person who wrote this article pointed out, if I remember correctly, uh, that uh, Mr. Yale himself 
was uh, very sympathetic uh, and accepted uh, slavery as part of his. Well, so do they want to change the name of the university because of that of this from a man from so long ago? You see the point. It becomes a repudiation of everything, and I think the hypocrisy of it sometimes can be, or the the blindness of it can be, that in the future. The fact that we have uh, in the United States aborted 60 million children in the womb through abortion, uh, a lot of these the same people take that in stride. And I dare say that the day will come when uh, a civilization will look back and say, how could they possibly have done something so abominable, morally repugnant and abominable? So we're always blind to our own moral Failure, well, blindnesses, yeah. uh, but we don't. But we're quick to attack the moral blindness of others. We do live in a sinful world, and we're constantly confronted with things like this. So I think we have to be thoughtful about this. And, uh, you know, what are we going to do? Change the name of our nation's capital because Washington was a slave owner? You know, I'm sure there's some who would like to do that. That's not for a moment to say that slavery's right, but you have to look in the context of those times of, of the social order. Precisely. Well, this, this coming Friday is National Caregivers Day. It's a day to honor health care professionals dedicated to providing services to those requiring long-term or hospice care. Any words of support, Archbishop, for caregivers? Well, yes, in a society in which um, people live a lot longer, but often in a weakened condition, and, and the extended family is not what it used to be, uh, so that people, even if their children have the best of intentions and really care about their parents and grandparents, they're not always able to do everything that's required, well, caregivers become very important. Mm. And whenever we exercise that kind of respect for human persons in in a diminished or feeble state, then that is, uh, that's a real act of charity. And Saturday is the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter the Apostle. Any visitor to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome can see a physical object known as the Chair of St. Peter at the back of the Basilica. But this feast is more than a celebration of a chair, is it not? Yeah, the chair is just a symbol. Just as the bishop's chair in the cathedral is a symbol of his teaching authority and presiding over the church, similarly, the chair of the Bishop of Rome, successor St. Peter, it refers to, to that. I mean, we don't say that St. Peter actually had a throne chair, yeah. uh, but that it is, it is meant to be symbolic of that, of that authority and that responsibility. Well, let's look now at the road to happiness in life, and this is where we examine the wisdom of Pope Francis that's drawn from some of the Pope's writings. So I'll read a portion of the Holy Father's address, and then we'll ask you, Archbishop, to comment with your own thoughts. And this is taken from Pope Francis's general audience, delivered on February 8th of 2017, and is called, Your Hope Needs a Body to Sustain It. The Pope says, To be nourished, hope needs a body, where all the different limbs support and revive one another. If we hope, it is because our brothers and sisters have taught us to hope and have kept our hope alive. I speak particularly of the small ones, the poor, the simple, and the marginalized here. Yes, because people who focus only on their own well-being do not truly know hope. They hope for themselves, and that is not hope. That is relative safety. He who thinks only of his own happiness, who always feels content, does not know hope. Instead, those who hope are those who are put to the test each day, who constantly face uncertainty and their own limitations. These brothers and sisters bear the strongest, most beautiful witness because they trust in the affection of our Lord, and they know that beyond the sadness of oppression and the inevitability of death, the last word will be his, and it will be a word of mercy, of life, and of peace. Whoever hopes, hopes to one day hear this word, come, 
Come to me, brother. Come, come to me, sister, for all eternity. Archbishop, your thoughts. Well, yes, Pope Francis uh, is reflecting on one of the great uh, theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. And by the way, they're theological virtues because we believe that they are a gift of grace. You know, we can say uh, virtue in a kind of humanistic way, but faith, hope, and charity are gifts of the Holy Spirit to have this hope within us. Pope Benedict wrote, I believe, an encyclical letter on uh, hope, and he uh, he said, you know, in the world today, do people really hope for anything, that they only hope for a better life in this world? Is anybody even interested in heaven anymore, the hope of eternal life? And you know, it is a profound question because everywhere we're confronted with the fact that people are indifferent to that, or else they imagine some personal philosophy or some personal kind of, I don't know, religious idea about the future, their future after death. But Christian hope is not vague, it is founded on the resurrection of Christ from the dead and uh, the fact that uh, ultimately Christ is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the ruler of all things in the universe, and that uh, the providence of God guides and governs all things. So we always have hope, uh, but that hope is often put to the test, and uh, we have to uh, be hopeful. And when we are hopeful, because we trust in the reality of God's reign and eternal life, then, as Pope Francis says, uh, we uh, are, are conscious of hope for other people as well, and we extend ourselves to them in, in, in a life-giving way. It's interesting because what the, the Pope seems to be saying is, is that hope takes us outside of ourselves. As he says, people who focus only on their own well-being do not truly know hope. They hope for themselves, and that is not hope. Well, I mean, you can have a hope for yourself with regard to the providence of God in this life and happiness with God forever in heaven. But, I, I mean, that is deeply personal. But I think what the Pope is saying is if hope is limited just to this world and its comforts, it really destroys hope because you don't have a bigger picture. You don't have a larger hope. You don't have a deeper hope. Much as I was saying from Pope uh, Benedict that you don't really give much thought to eternity or to heaven because you're content with, uh, you're just hoping for things in this world for well, yourself. We've got several questions that have been submitted by WJMJ listeners, but before we get to those questions, let's look at our gospel reading for today on this sixth Sunday in Ordinary Time. And this gospel is taken from Matthew, the fifth chapter of Matthew's gospel. After the gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, asking for your thoughts and, and what this gospel means. Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the council and whoever says, you fool, shall be liable 
to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Make friends quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out till you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, makes her an adulteress, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Archbishop, this is a lengthy gospel. What are your thoughts as you hear this gospel account by Matthew? Well, one of the two things, really. One, the first has to do with the law. You know, Jesus had, even though he took great liberties, uh, you know, for example, saying that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and saying that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, in effect, may make us think that Jesus was abolishing the law but not really. He talks about its fulfillment. Yeah. That is to say uh, that those things, the deepest meaning of the old law was fulfilled in him. And now there's certain things, obviously, like dietary things and such that n no longer apply. But uh, the fundamental, most important, most elevated things of the law find their fulfillment in Christ. And he praises those who observe them. And then, of course, the other thing is about our relationships with one another, fraternal relationships. He's warning us not to let our animosity or our harsh judgments or anger against others linger. Uh, that it's important, you know, what is, I believe it's St. Peter says in one of his epistles, don't let the sun set on your just anger. In other words, it's possible to be angry for a, a justifiable reason when, when people do things that are evil or, or wrong. or But you cannot harbor this. You have to, you have to hand it over to the Lord, who is the only just judge, and uh, you have to always strive to reconcile these differences. You know, in keeping with with what Christ has commanded us to do. In terms of Jesus saying, "I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill the law," 
How did he fulfill the law? Well, Jesus fulfilled the law by showing that left to ourselves, human beings cannot fulfill the law of the Old Testament. St. Paul makes a huge argument about this, that no matter how you strive to fulfill the letter of the law, uh, human beings always fall short. And so Jesus has fulfilled the law perfectly, in a sense, for us by his perfect obedience and his death on the cross. Paul uses these images of that, you know, the law being nailed up on the cross with Christ. It is a fulfillment. It doesn't mean that the good things that were asked or commanded are not true. But Jesus gives us the grace to, from within, uh, to, to fulfill it. And I think that's so important because, uh, for example, some of the harder teachings that people find, uh, Pope John Paul the Great, St. John Paul said this, that these demanding things on us, like the indissolubility of marriage, for example, which figures in this gospel, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. That these are not just ideals. Uh, left to ourselves, they would not be possible to fulfill. But Christ has made it possible for us to live the gospel, to live what he taught us. It couldn't be clearer here, you know, that, and, and whatever d discussion there might be about Pope Francis uh, regarding uh, the discipline of, of marriage and uh, divorced people, you know, the Pope reaffirms very strongly that the indissolubility of marriage, this is as clear a teaching as you could possibly find in the gospel coming from Christ. So, you know, we have to understand that we can't say, well, it's just not possible in my situation to do this. We have to strive with God's help uh, to, 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 to live it. And, you know, divorce is such a uh, neuralgic thing because a lot of times it's, it was initiated on the part of one spouse, not the other. And it's very hateful of, for them uh, to have undergone this very heartbreaking and the destruction of families and the, and the children. One thinks of the children, you know, who suffer from this. There are some pretty heavy expectations that we are placed under here. For instance, you shall not kill, but neither should you grow angry with your brother. You shall not commit right. adultery, but everyone who, who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This it doesn't seem to be the warm, caring Jesus that we expect, huh? Well, he's warm and caring, but not by trashing the moral law or the what, what God not only expects of us, but what God empowers us to do that is truly right and good in a sinful world. You know, before Christ, people were kind of on their own having to try to fulfill these huge expectations. But in Christ, to the extent that we are members of his body through baptism, through the Holy Eucharist, through confirmation, we are given the grace. That is not to say that people are still not weak. They fail. They stumble. But Christ is always there to save us and raise us up and to help us to do the right thing. You know, a saint is one who has lived heroic sanctity. A saint, and we're all called to be saints. Saints are not just people who kept their nose clean and just, you know, didn't do much of anything. All of us have big things in our life that we have to face, big decisions, moral decisions. But a saint is someone who exhibited uh, heroic sanctity, uh, even if they're not on the calendar of the church. There are things in all of our lives that require some heroic sanctity if we're to be, if we're to be faithful followers of Christ. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than to have your whole body thrown into Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Were we to take this literally, there'd be a lot of maimed people walking our streets. What's Jesus no, saying? 
while Jesus is a teacher who's trying to emphasize the absolute seriousness for eternal, our eternal destiny, the relative importance of these things. And of course, when it comes to sin, there is no relative argument to be made. We have to, uh, we have to turn away, as we say on Ash Wednesday, one of the formulas for the ashes, turn away from sin and believe in the gospel. And that's our lifelong struggle, our lifelong challenge with God's help to turn away from sin and believe in the gospel. It's not done once, you know, with all due respect to our evangelical friends, it's not just something that one day you say, you know, I Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and, and that's that. Obviously, that's the beginning, but we have to, we have to strive every day uh, to, to live that uh, and to, to, when we fall, to get up again with God's absolution and help. Well, Archbishop, let's take a look at some of the questions that have been submitted by our listeners. For instance, Ronnie from Enfield says, I'm the type of person who doesn't pray for things like a new house or a car or lots of money. I mostly pray to God for strength to get through whatever I'm facing. I'm wondering what you pray for from a personal perspective. Well, Ronnie, you're not far from the kingdom of God when you realize that praying for a lotto win is not exactly Christ's idea of the of an elevated spiritual life. <laughs> and uh, what do I pray for? Well, as Archbishop, obviously I pray for many, many things. I have many responsibilities. I'm very concerned about the church. I have to be concerned too about my own spiritual well-being and salvation. So I pray for the grace to overcome my sins and shortcomings, uh, to do better. I pray for all the many things that the, the church in the United States and in the world are is suffering right now. Uh, whether because of evils committed in the church by its members uh, or whether because of the great um, falling off of faith of so many people. Uh, you know, those are, are, are the things that I, that I have to pray for. And the many people who ask me for prayers, uh, I mean, certainly I pray too for an increase of ordinations to the priesthood in this archdiocese. Jesus said, pray the harvest master to send laborers into his harvest. So I do that every day as fervently as I can. As chief shepherd of the Archdiocese of Hartford, do you pray for those who are in your flock? Oh, absolutely. A bishop is obliged to do that. Every week I offer one mass pro popolo, which means for the people, uh, that uh, we are obliged absolutely to pray for our diocese and for the people entrusted to us. And I do that in other ways as well, but certainly that would be a symbol of it. Jess from Prospect says, I keep hearing that the church is declining in numbers in America, but whenever I look into this, I see that there are a higher number of Catholics than ever before. Which is it? Are we going up in numbers or down? Well, Jess, I believe we're still going up, uh, but the reason for that are immigrants. Um, if it were from the more traditional, because we're all immigrants except for the Native Americans, uh, if it were from the more traditional immigrant groups uh, from Europe in times past, that number is, uh, I believe, declining. Mm. Uh, and among those, we have to understand, too, that many people might say that they're Catholic, but they hardly ever go to Mass or hardly ever really practice, or maybe don't practice their faith. And I don't mean to uh, downplay that. If a person still thinks that they're Catholic, even though they have no practice of it, well, then we have something to work with, don't we? Uh, it's not that they've repudiated religion or their faith. But uh, the, the, highest, the growth of the church in the United States is clearly due to Hispanic-Latino immigration. Uh, if you look uh, at the—I always forget the percentage, but an astounding number of Catholics under the age of 20 
are Hispanic. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Dear Lord, you make many radical demands of us in the gospel, but those radical demands are also accompanied by the merits of your passion and cross and by your assurance that you are with us always and that nothing is impossible for God and that the grace to live uh, the virtues and to live by the truths of the gospel are a possibility for us, even in our weakness. So we ask for the strength and grace to live a truly Christian life, to be your followers and to imitate you. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. And we look forward to joining you next week again at 7 o'clock on a Sunday morning with a repeat at 1130. Until then, enjoy this week. You too, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.